at the very beginning of everything, God makes everything. And the Bible records the story in Genesis 1 and again in Genesis 2 of how there was actually nothing, nothing even to make something out of. And just the very nature of creation out of nothing is the act of the divine or the the act of who we come to know as Yahweh God actually creating. And the highlight of his creation becomes humans who are made, the Bible says, in his image. And these uh, humans are made in his image in relationship. He makes a man who's named Adam and a woman who is named Eve. And Adam and Eve live in relationship with God in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve actually break that relationship. There was, in any relationship, boundaries uh, sometimes stated, sometimes not stated, and in this case they were plainly stated, and they decide uh, to willfully uh, cross those boundaries, and they break the relationship. And now God forgives them and sets them on a path for redemption as soon as he possibly can and that relationship is restored. But there's consequences that live on. In any relationship, when you break that relationship, you can forgive, you can even forget, you can move on from it. But there are sometimes consequences to our actions that will live on. If you commit a crime, we can forgive you, but sometimes you've got to go to jail for a bit. And we can forgive you all the way. Or sometimes you need to pay restitution. But we can forgive you all the way. But there are responsibilities and consequences that come with our actions. And so in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the human beings, Adam and Eve, live in this perfect relationship with God. And then in Genesis chapter 3, it becomes fractured. And we live in the consequence of this fracturing. And we live actually in... what we commonly call like A.D. or B.C. We live after Christ did his work on the cross in his, his perfect life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And because of that, we look back at the story in a different way than they experienced the story because we can see the quickening of the redemption of the world. And we believe that God is doing good things in the world and will eventually bring his creation And all of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus or call him Lord or King and Savior, all of those people will be brought into what the Bible describes as heaven. And in Revelation 21 and 22 actually gives a picture of a very uh, Garden of Eden-like place as God desires to bring us back into that relationship. But we live in a place where we have to deal with the consequences and deal with the reality of being in a very broken place. And that's what Genesis chapter 4 is going to introduce us to today. And we're going to talk through this, and uh, I'm going to read through it uh, piece by piece, uh, and then uh, kind of talk through it as we go. But I want to just explain something really quick about Bible translation. This section of the Bible was actually originally written in the the language uh, that is Hebrew, all right? Nobody really speaks Hebrew anymore. Um, It's kind of a uh, well, there are like not ancient Hebrew. There is a common Hebrew that happens uh, by people who speak it, like in Israel and things like that. Uh, but there is this translation that needs to happen, not just from one language to another, but from thousands of years ago to today. 
And so if you have an English Bible, it's translated from one language to another. And most of the time, I know you never have done this, but in the beginning or the ending of your Bible, if you've got a good Bible, it tells you who the translating committee is. And you can look at the schools that hired the people that are on your translating committee and decide if you, this is nerdy, isn't it? And decide if you're down with that translating committee or not. There are other ones like The Message, which I love, but it's a paraphrase written by one guy who I appreciate, uh, Eugene Peterson, who was a pastor, and he wrote this translation, kind of. And other Bibles, like the NIV, which I'm going to preach out today, the ESV, the ASV, uh, even the King James, had committees of people who went, worked around those so that it wasn't one person's bias. Now, the NIV, the copy I have here, is called NIV 2004. What we're going to see on the screen is NIV 2011. All right? So there's going to be a little difference from what you've grown up with. Because at the beginning, don't put it up yet, because at the beginning, this is sentence one. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. All right, we all know what that means, don't we? Right? Like They didn't just lay next to each other, and she became pregnant. There was something going on. But millennials apparently need that explained. And so... No offense to millennials, we love you. And so we have a new translation called the NIV 2011, which is the only one you can get online to put on the screen. And we're going to see that. And we're going to play some Barry White music while we're doing it. That's not true. Um, but I just wanted to give you that warning. If your kids didn't go to Sunday school, you might want to cover their eyes. Because uh, Adam, he didn't just lay. He made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. We're just going to sit there for a second. <laughs> right? Adam. All right. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know why the committee said, hey, let's embarrass pastors when they preach this and force them to, it actually, we're, we're going to say this again later because Adam and Eve have more kids and, and we get it. We know where kids come from. We don't need you to keep saying that. Um, but I guess when this was originally re written, they really wanted people to understand this is where kids come from. And it makes sense, Adam and Eve being the first people. You had to figure that stuff out. <laughs> so let's read together. <laughs> so Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, Eve said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. So that you understand, in ancient Israel, people would be named in ways that would be foreshadowing of their life. If they brought these things up, they were actually important, all right? Abel, the name Abel, um, means like a breath or a vapor, means like short, and when it's gone, it's gone. Cain means brought forth meaning Eve brought forth Cain. And there's a bit of uh, interaction there that we'll talk about in a little bit between who brought Cain forth. But later she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel kept flocks, so he was a shepherd, and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Now Abel... Uh, uh, <clears throat> Now Abel also brought an offering, 
fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was angry, and we'll stop here, and his face was downcast. So Abel is a shepherd, and Cain is a farmer. And Cain brings some of the fruits of his soil as an offering. And this is a very early, very primitive thing that they're doing because there's no, like, instructions. Leviticus chapter 2 actually talks about a grain offering or a, uh, an offering of the fruit of the land to God. And these offerings were given as a way of honoring the deity. And it would be brought either to the temple, and sometimes these things would be burned, and sometimes they would just be waved around, which is kind of funny, and then given to the priest who would eat them. But if there's just Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel, there's probably no priest. There's probably this God that they hear about and they decide to honor the God in some strange way by bringing them an offering. And the offerings are described that Abel brought an offering, fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. But you see the difference that a lot of people point out is that it was the firstborn of his flock and Cain not necessarily the first fruits of his field. And so when the Lord looks with favor on Abel and his offering but not on Cain, a lot of us try to figure out why. Why did that happen? And the Bible doesn't really explain it. A lot of people say because it's the difference between first fruits or firstborn and, and later, meaning you need to give God, uh, like if you give offering to God, you give him, like that's the first way you spend your money, not at the end of the month I have this much left over and so God gets that. There's a trust or an honoring that goes on when we give to God first, which I think it's true, but I, don't, I think that might be stretching because it doesn't say plainly here that the Lord looked on favor with Abel because of this and his offering because of this, but on Cain with his offering did not look with favor. And the reason that it doesn't explain it is, in part, we have a, and we talked about this over and over, we have a different mindset and a different way of looking at the world than they would have in the ancient Near Eastern world in the very, very early place that this was originally, this story was originally told and memorized and passed on. And so when we look at it, we're looking for, why is that? That's a scientific way of thinking. Whereas the ancient Near Eastern people and ancient Israelites, when they would have wrote this or written this, it actually wasn't a question, it wasn't the first question that would come up. Someone would say, why did that happen? And the answer would be, well, because he's God. And they just we're okay with God accepting some things and not accepting other things. And we're not okay with that because we think God has to be fair and just and he has to do the things that we want him to do. And Cain is much more like us. Cain is very angry, and he's angry at God for not accepting his offering, but accepting the offering of his brother, which if you have a brother, you'd be angry too. If you did something and there's no instructions on it, and your brother did something and there's no instructions on it, and your brother was looked on favorably and you weren't, well, you'd be upset about those things. You would have some kind of rivalry there. The, if we can point to any sin or anything that might happen, it might be that Cain is guilty of what we call like tokenism. Like I'm going to give something to God just so I can say I gave something to God. Like just to uh, get God off my back not just to keep me from feeling guilty. Uh, this is kind of like the tipping method of, of honoring God with our stuff. 
Like, I'm going to give God a tip this week because it was good, you know, like it was good service, so God gets a little, and I'll put a little happy face next to it uh, so that, because I know that's what waitresses really want is a happy face. Um, it, it is kind of funny when you back up and you think, am I treating God like a waiter? When he comes and gives me good service, do I give him uh, a bigger tip or not? And then you back up and say, what do I believe about God? It's a dangerous place to be when you're asking God to refill your water glass. Uh, let's move on. <laughs> the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? So in some way, Cain didn't do what was right. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. It is an interesting thing for two reasons. Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel have been tossed out of the Garden of Eden where God walks around. And so they're out here in the wilderness or to the east of the garden, the Bible says, and they are farming or they are managing their flocks. I guess they got to bring some sheep with them or some kind of cattle with them when they were kicked out of the garden. Or maybe they were just kind of, when they wandered out, they'd grab them and be like, you're mine now, we're going to eat you. Uh, but like, there's, no, there's no telling where they got these animals from. But when something goes wrong, God actually has what appears to be a face-to-face -face conversation with Cain. God has a face-to-face -face conversation with Cain outside of the Garden of Eden, and after he's shown Cain that he's not pleased with him. I don't know how that worked, but it worked. Cain understood that God wasn't pleased, and then God goes to Cain and has a conversation with him. It's an interesting thing because a lot of us would think that God can't talk to us where we are, like we live so far outside of the reach of God or we think things that are so far outside of what God would have us think or, or we think that. And so it's a, it should be an encouraging thing or a surprising thing that God apparently thinks someone like Cain is worth having a conversation with. And God's conversation with him warns him of sin that is crouching at the door, which would be a common phrase that they would use in the ancient Near East, uh, there were actually like demonic gods that they would talk about that were personified as a little demon hanging outside your door that was going to trip you as you leave the house or come into the house. And so if sin is crouching at the door and it desires to own you and you must master it, there's an early acknowledgement of the relationship between sin, uh, sorry, sin and humanity, whereas sin wants to own you and master you and you must own and master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, if you went to Sunday school, you know this isn't going to a good place. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Really poetic kind of language. And when you work the ground, it will no longer yield, your, yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Now if you were here when we talked about Adam and Eve, when God found Adam and Eve wearing clothes, hiding in the garden, he said, what have you done? 
And Eve said, uh, well, sorry, Adam first said, the woman did something. I didn't do anything. The woman gave me food and I ate it. And the woman said, it's not my fault. The snake did this thing. And so they passed the blame. And that kind of a character trait gets passed on immediately to Cain, who murders his brother. And God says, hey, where's your brother? I don't know. Am I in charge of my brother? It's, a, it's an interesting thing because God doesn't answer the question, which is kind of a fantastic moment. Because Cain's problem here isn't uh, like with his brother. His problem here is that God isn't putting Cain in charge of God. Because Cain wants to do an offering like this and God is displeased and God tells him, you better get a grip on yourself or sin is going to master you. And then sin masters him and he kills a human being. Which when there's only four human beings on earth so far, this is kind of a big deal. This is wiping out a quarter of the population. <laughs> this is... Uh, like it would be obvious when Cain came back from the field. Hey, where's your brother? You guys went to the field together. There's only four humans, and now we're missing one. And Cain says, am I in charge of that? I don't know where he is. And God loses it, and he actually expels Cain, not just like his family's already been expelled from the Garden of Eden, and then like Adam and Eve, and then they made this family, and then Cain now is being expelled from that family. He's cursed to say that you will wander the earth and the things you try to grow will never grow. It just isn't going to happen. You're going to just wander the earth the rest of your life as a punishment for what you've done to Abel and allowing sin to master you and questioning God. Now, Cain says to the Lord in verse 13, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, which is east of Eden. Isn't this a strange passage? Cain actually is worried about someone killing him. Who? It's kind of a strange thing because it's like, if you just killed the one other person who would be killing you, then are you worried about Adam and Eve coming out and finding you? Some people like to think that maybe God made more people than just Adam and Eve. That's theologically difficult. But then in the next verse, it's going to talk about how Cain has kids, which means if Adam didn't, if there weren't more people, then that was his sister, which we're uncomfortable with the first people being that redneck, right? <laughs> like, we're all right with them until, you know, they are a little bit country. And by a little bit, I mean a lot. There is this, uh, so there is this kind of, we have all these questions that wouldn't have been questions for the original people because they didn't have to worry about the theology in 1 Corinthians and Romans about Adam being the first person and all sin coming to all people through Adam. And if God made more people over here, did they bear the sin of Adam because they weren't direct descendants of Adam because the descendancy is where the original sin, that's how that's transmitted. And you don't have those problems. You're just like, oh, this is fun, but they're, 
when we think theologically about it, it becomes a really complicated issue. It also, and I'm not pointing this out to you, but up to this point, I read this in a book, marrying your sister wasn't outlawed. It was totally cool. It was like, yeah, nobody had thought there's an option besides marrying your sister because there were no other people besides your brothers and sisters. And maybe there were more than just Cain and Abel. Maybe there are more children that we don't know about or that aren't included in the story. What, if, if that's the point that we're trying to get and it's not told in the story, then there must be a different point to the story. And Cain, it's interesting to me, because Cain invents murder. Like the animals are killed by God in order to give clothing to Adam and Eve. And I imagine they would have killed more animals to create clothing for their kids. And so they had seen firsthand how the life can leave a being, but had never seen firsthand that that can happen to a human being. And Cain invents murder. He very much invents death. And immediately he's terrified of it. And tells God, if I have to go out there, this will happen to me. Like I'll be away from your presence and this will happen to me. He's acknowledging in a way that he had already left the presence of God and that's how Abel died. Because they went out in the field away from God. Which is a misunderstanding of God and his power, but this is what Cain is going. And so God actually has mercy on Cain, who is a murderer, the first murderer, murdered a quarter of the human population. Like this is a significant deal. And he actually... I don't know what this is, but he says he puts a mark on Cain so that if anyone kills Cain, the vengeance of the Lord uh, would come down sevenfold. So Cain made love to his wife because that's how babies come. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. And Cain was then building a city. And he named it after his son Enoch. And to Enoch was born Irad and Irad... <laughs> thought more highly of himself than he ought to. I'm rad. It was the father of Mehuyel, and Mehuyel was the father of Methushel, and Methushel was the father of Lamech. And Lamech married two women. He's the first guy to decide that I need two women. And one named Ada and the other named Zillah. And they're probably distant cousins by this time. And Ada gave birth to Jabel, and he was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock wandering herdsman. And his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all who played stringed instruments and pipes. Uh -huh. So this is the invention of music. And Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. And Tubal Cain's sister was Nama. And so you see there's this, this culture growing, isn't it? There's people who are traveling and people who are becoming herdsmen and people who are inventing music and, and there are people who are uh, inventing tools and, and metals and those kinds of things. And, and Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, the wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Who was avenging for Cain, though? God was. Who's avenging for Lamech? Lamech is. 
Do you see how quickly sin has gotten radically bad? In the first generation, or the second, the first generation being Adam and Eve, in the second generation, Cain and Abel, murder happens right away. And now we've moved down a few generations to where Lamech is saying, I've killed a man for wounding me. Like it's not an eye for an eye, it's not an equal punishment, it's you hurt me, so I killed you. You didn't hurt me so bad that I couldn't kill you, and if anybody comes after me, the revenge on them will be 77 times worse because God promised Cain seven times worse, and I'm 11 times better than him. You see how quickly sin got really, really, really bad? For people who are believers, when we see the severity of sin that's in our world, in a strange way, like we can be shocked by it, but we probably shouldn't be surprised by it. Because if we're surprised by the abilities of evil that sin creates, then we actually have a problem with understanding just how destructive sin is. Like the line that says, I'm not hurting anybody, it's just me when you sin, is a fantastic lie to tell yourself. It's a huge lie to tell yourself. Because we've seen that Adam and Eve's little sin has grown to a point where people are devaluing other human beings, taking multiple wives, killing people for reasons that don't deserve death, like sibling rivalry or in a personal injury, and so now I get to kill you and kill 77 of your friends. It gets really violent really fast. And we see this story happening where we think, oh, these are good things. Like there's a city being built and there's herdsmen who are farming in fields and there's becoming this economy that happens. There are people who, who there are musicians and so there are some who are living off of the welfare of others because we know musicians never make a living wage. And, and there are... <laughs> and there are uh, people who are making tools and, and metal workers and maybe making things like weapons and farming tools and uh, like all of these things are happening. But while all of those things are happening, evil is getting greater and greater and greater. It's interesting to me, this passage, because I think we live in a time where amazing things are happening. I printed something off of my phone today. And I told my kids, when, and that's probably not even cool to you, but uh, I told my kids, like, when I was young, we had a phone attached to the wall, and we had a computer that would print by doing a series of dots on a page, and then you'd rip the circles off the side, and, and it was kind of awesome. <laughs> it was like the coolest thing you had ever done. We have this advancement in communication, and we have... Uh, the ability to uh, feed and bring water to more people. And we have revolutionized healthcare to where there's diseases that used to be terminal, then now we have abilities to do things that we've never had before. We have people who are taking like organs from one person and putting them in another person, or taking organs and just making them and putting them in a person. This is wild stuff, and we should be thinking, oh, the world is getting so much better, like it's so much cooler. And yet, we also can look around our world and see that there are new kinds of evil that we never even anticipated happening in our world. The Bible actually says that people who do evil are constantly inventing new ways of doing evil. 
every technological advancement, every health advancement, every advancement towards peace creates opportunities for people to use those good things for evil. And so we live in a world where we can be radically shocked even though we're making advances that we've never seen before. And you think it's strange, but the first time someone pulled out a guitar and played it, everyone's mind was blown, right? Like you just, we just see these things, and, but the first time that someone took their cattle and went over the mountain to the grass over there, everyone's mind was blown. How come I didn't think of that? And, and that's really obvious to us, right? The first person to milk a cow was probably like a, a national hero. You just squeeze that thing? <laughs> right? There are all sorts of awkward conversations that happen there, aren't there? But there's, there's these advances that are just blowing people's minds, yet in this we see there's a degradation and a destruction that's happening in humanity because of the severity of sin. Because sin affects us in a way that we don't even know that it affects us. Now, I preach a lot of grace, like a lot. I've been criticized as a pastor for preaching too much grace, which encourages me to preach more grace to that person. Because I believe in God's grace. I believe that you here, no matter what brings you here or what state you're in or what sin has mastered you, that God loves you unconditionally and will stop at nothing to restore a relationship with you to the point where I believe God killed his own son or sorry, allowed his own son to die so that uh, you can have a relationship with God. Now what happens a lot of times, and this is in Romans 6, where it actually says, so if there is more grace because of God's sacrifice, then should we sin more because then God's sacrifice is greater? And this is my favorite, talking about Bible translations. You can Google this, Cotton Patch Gospel. It's only online. You can't get it in print. But it says, should we sin more so that grace is more? And the Cotton Patch Gospel says, hell no. <laughs> because it's an obvious no. It's like saying I have this friend and they forgive me no matter what I do, so every day I punch them in the face so that they can forgive me more because that way our friendship grows. No, it doesn't. Right? Like eventually you're going to take a punch to the face. Or you're going to talk to the police, which is a more responsible thing to do. There is, like, when we think, oh, God loves me, and so even when I sin, he still loves me, there's a joy in the acceptance of his grace. But there's a cheapening of his grace when we think sin isn't that bad. When we think evil isn't that bad. And in our culture, we've moved, and this, the dangerous move in our culture is we've moved from a God-defining sin to a humanity-defining sin. Which is the same move that we see happening here. Cain is justified in what he does. I'm not my brother's keeper because he's created his own standard of, of morality. And creating your own standard of morality is the highlight of our culture today. I am who I am because I say I am who I am. 
And these are really, like I'm not trying to cheapen this conversation, but these are really complicated conversations. And it comes out in an awkward way in our culture. It comes out because uh, people have decided to take sexuality in our culture as your major identifier. This is who I am, where that's never happened before. And we see things, little conversation pieces that are happening to where, I don't know if you watched the Oscars this year, but they said someone went through uh, gender confirmation surgery, whereas five years ago it was called gender reassignment surgery. And there's these interesting conversations that happen. I have a friend who is, uh, he's super, super conservative. We played basketball together in high school, and he's pregnant with his first child. It's really, really exciting. Uh, his first marriage fell apart really quickly and was very sad, and he's married. I'm, I'm so happy for him. But they had a, a party where you reveal the gender of your baby, right? We do this kind of stuff, and you cut a cake, or you let balloons out, or you do something strange because we need more parties. Uh, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but he said he's, they were having this party, and he said it's kind of a strange thing because I feel like I shouldn't be having this party, and he's partly sarcastic when he says this, because I shouldn't be saying what gender they are because later on they're going to tell me what gender they are. Isn't that a strange thought? For some of you, that's a perfectly normal thought. And for some of us, that's the strangest thought you've ever heard. And you're not using the word strange. So for some, like, and so we move in our society from a, a God, and I'm not saying that we did it well, but we've, the danger of our culture today is that we don't see an external, external source of authority we see our own personal source of authority. Every time you get a speeding ticket and you're mad at the cop for giving you a speeding ticket, you've decided that you are the person of authority for speed limits on this road. Isn't that an interesting conversation? Every time you get on an airplane and the bag that you're carrying isn't the right size or you don't put it where it's supposed to go because the rules apply for everyone else. But I'm going to push the rules a little bit. You've decided that you're the source of authority, not the airline being the source of authority. These things creep into us and we don't even notice them because the culture of our day is such that the source of authority has moved like it did in Genesis 1, is moving or encouraged to be self, not encouraged to be external. And we would say the source of my authority is the authoritative word, normative, word of God. To follow the word of God and not follow what your own desire or your own thoughts or your own wants is, is a radical countercultural way to live. So here's what happens at the end of chapter 3, or sorry, chapter 4. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted, and, and this is what Seth means, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. And Seth also had a son and named him Enosh, and at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. Do you remember Eve's first kid, Cain? And it says, I, Eve said, I have brought forth a man. Who, who did that? Eve did that. And then Seth is born, 
And Seth means granted. And Eve says, God has granted me another child. For Cain, Eve was the source. And for Seth, God was the source. Do you see the change in Eve? Eve, who is the original and the first sinner, that carried with her to the point where she and Adam made love and had a child, and she said, I created Cain. And then she looks at what she has created and is heartbroken by it. And then Seth is granted to her or given to her. It's interesting to think that the people of God, if you're a person of God, then your job or your relationships or your, the means by which you earn a living is actually something that's given to you by God. It's not because of your effort. It's not because of how smart you are. It's not because of how hard you worked. It's because God has decided to let you do this as opposed to I'm doing this and God approves of it. You see how different that view of God is? And Seth is born, and at this time, people begin to call on the name of the Lord, meaning people begin to worship him, people begin to pray to him. They find the musicians and write songs and begin to sing to him. There's a huge contrast there. And the contrast is, are you doing something for God? Is the, your relationship with God sourced in you? Or is your relationship with God and the things that you produce in your life all granted by God? The things that you source and the things that you, uh, for some reason, take like a, an um, overabundance of pride in, those things bring destruction. If you are the source, if God is the source, it turns people towards relationship with God. There's a humility that grows in Eve and an understanding of who God is, which really is kind of the definition of humility, understanding who you are and who God is. Eve sins in the garden by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because she wants to help God out by being a source of the knowledge of good and evil. Now I will be like God. And this gets into her soul to the point where when she has her first kid, she says, look what... I have made a human. I'm just like God. And she sees the human that she makes become wildly disappointing, wildly destructive. And you've got to wonder, when you see one child murder the other child, what goes on in Eve and the heartbreak that she experiences and God walking her through that to where at the end of the story she says, God has granted me Seth. And because she changes who she is, what she passes on to her child is someone who actually turns to God and calls on the name of the Lord. The beginning of worship happens in Genesis chapter 4, right after the beginning of murder. The contrast is stark. The contrast is startling because there's a recognition in the story of the difference between sin and holiness. And what needs to under, be understood is that there's a little bit of Cain in every one of us and a little bit of Seth in every one of us. And the contrast 
is startling in ourselves. The evil that you and I are capable of is striking. The people who do great evils that you see on television stuff are people like you and I. When you're watching the news or you see your feed on your phone, they're people. People with moms and dads and brothers and sisters and wives and kids. And they're doing things that are wildly evil. And then you'll see stories or watch stories about people who are doing amazing things, calling upon the name of the Lord and worshiping him and turning people towards Jesus. And those people are normal people. They have moms and dads and brothers and sisters and wives and kids just like you. And we have this opportunity to be this way or be that way. We have this opportunity to try to justify our sin. And we have this other opportunity to repent of our sin and be obedient to God. We have this opportunity to be our own source of authority. You can be your own source of authority in the world if you want. It's encouraged. But we see from the scripture that that path leads to destruction. And we see from the scripture that a path where God is the authority and God is the source of wisdom and God is the source of all good things, it leads to life, it leads to relationship, and it leads to holiness in your life. And there's a choice there. And I don't think it's the kind of choice where I can say, so choose today, this or that. I think you're going to have that choice 10 or 20 times today, 30 or 40 times tomorrow. 40 or 50 times the next day. Like, you're going to turn to Jesus over and over and over and over again. Because Eve turns to Jesus very, very, or turns to God. She didn't know Jesus yet. But she turns to God very, very slowly. And through a whole series of events, she ends up turning towards God. And you're going to face events, hopefully, not as startling as the events that Eve faced. But maybe startling in a different way. And you're going to have the choice to interact with the world around you in a way that leads to evil and interact with the world around you in a way that leads to peace and hope and love. In Genesis 4, we see the results of both of those things. And we're called, very clearly, not to murder, not to vengeance, not to evil, but we're called to seeing God as the grantor of all good things and living in relationship with him. Let me pray for us, all right? Let's stand. God, I ask that you would guide us all into your presence and into your peace and into relationship with you, that you would allow us to know you, that you would allow us to follow you, that you would save us from our tendency to think that we are deserving of something or that we are the source of something or that we are better than someone else. Forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of the time that we walked away from you and allow us to repent and turn towards you and grant us the goodness of your presence. Grant us the goodness of of your mercy on our lives in the same way you had mercy on Cain. Allow us to call on your name and allow us to spread that name to others. Be the source of all that is good in our lives, Lord, and allow us the dependence on you that we desire by your name and in your grace, dependent on your mercy, we pray. Amen.